on today's episode of Beyond Eight Figures. So we set the buy-in really low at five grand. Now I say really low. I know a lot of people are like, that's not, that's a lot of money. And it is, but for these guys, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, five grand to get, and I get to sit and hang out with Toby McGuire and Ben Affleck and Leo DiCaprio all night. Count me in. Right. Yeah. Starting scaling and exiting a business is hard. So why do some companies achieve seven, eight and nine figure exits while others struggle to reach six figures in revenue? To answer these questions, we sit down with top entrepreneurs who have exited for more than $10 million or currently run $10 million plus businesses and grill them until they share their proven tactics and strategies. Welcome to Beyond Eight Figures. Alrighty, welcome to week number 628 of uh, the quarantine edition here <laughs> of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? How you doing there, sir? Excellent. Thank you. How about yourself? All right. All right. We're going to bring on our buddy Houston Curtis here in just a second. Um, in the meantime here, Richie, I think, uh, are, are we going the just for men route? Are we, uh, are we going to have to be dyeing the beard or are we oh, leaving no. it gray? What's, what's the plan here? This, this shows you can get kicked in the face and get back up again right here. That's what this is. This is experience. <laughs> we, we earned those badges of honor, right? Yeah. Nice, man. I like it. That's as long as actually, for those of you uh, who are going, what the hell are you talking about? We're, um, we have been broadcasting live uh, on Facebook as well during the quarantine here. And so we, uh, we have an opportunity to see one another as we always do when we're in person, but obviously on video now you guys are welcome to join us uh, as we do broadcast live pretty much every Thursday from 12 until 2 Pacific. And uh, very, very, very excited to, to bring on today's guest on Beyond Eight Figures, somebody I've been looking forward to uh, for having on here uh, for some time when Kelly said, hey, you know, this is uh, this is a gentleman who wants to come on and share what he's up to. I was like, oh, hell yes. Let's, uh, let's make that happen in a heartbeat. So we're going to have an opportunity here uh, to be joined by the one and only Houston Curtis. And what I would love uh, to know first out of the gate here, uh, Houston, and I'm, I've got a buddy named Curtis and I'm just, it's like, you know, no I see the Houston again. It's like, I keep going when you're like, I'm Curtis, what's up, man? I so, love uh, it. Dallas, yeah. whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, all that fun stuff. So let's um, let's do this first, man. How do you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures? Did you exit from a business uh, for more than $10 million? Do you currently run a business that grosses more than $10 million annually? Or did you have businesses that gross more than $10 million? Where, where do you fall on that, uh, on that spectrum? Uh, I fall in the spectrum of having businesses that uh, gross more than $10 million, $10 million annually. Uh, two, two of my businesses um I, I guess with poker you could say three yeah <laughs> let's, it, so let's yeah so let's play that out for a second so what so what pick one so which business right now is grossing more than 10 million annually oh right now i'm uh i i'm on a, a book author i got you so <laughs> I, yeah that, i just want to make sure you weren't still actively involved with them i know you got the book coming out and all that fun stuff yeah no the, i i'm uh, I'm watching a, a new uh, um, OTT platform that I'm not really prepared to talk about yet, but it's a uh, uh, really exciting endeavor. Uh, but uh, yeah, I got blown to smithereens on the, on the tail end of uh, one multi-million dollar business that I, that I built. And uh, it's kind of what brought me here to you today. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. <laughs> so, so let's, let's pick that, pick, pick that one apart sure. for a minute here. Let's, go let's ahead. go back to the embryonic stages. Uh, on that business and uh, shall I assume or shall I assume incorrectly that the businesses that you have been involved with in one way shape or form have either been uh, that you built to 10 million plus have either been involved in gambling or magic or cards or, or one of the three or was it outside of those industries altogether? Uh, I, I wouldn't say outside of them altogether uh, because I was the executive producer of the ultimate blackjack tour uh, which was also a back-end portal to uh, uh, a large online gaming component and uh, that was produced under the uh, umbrella of my production company which I built into you know a, a multi we grossed probably over a hundred million dollars in revenue uh, yeah. big vision entertainment was the name of that company and um, and while that company was uh, thriving uh, that is when I started a side endeavor with Toby McGuire, which be also became a multi-million dollar business. 
uh, and a very interesting one at that, uh, yeah. which was the, you know, became basically the biggest poker game in Hollywood history. Yeah. So lots of ground to cover on that. And, uh, and I know Richie's jumped out of his chair already. So let me just make sure um, that everyone is clear so the the business with uh, with Toby is is a second business, but the the first business that was that was ground zero. You started that from scratch, right? So- I, I I did, and it was an interesting story as well. You guys remember the backyard wrestling videos of the kids jumping off the roofs and beating the hell sure. out of each other in mom and dad's backyard? That was yeah. me. I was the creator of the best of backyard wrestling, ah. and uh, it was a great time because. Um, DVD, sell through DVD was just coming into its own. Uh, people were so let's sta- date, date stamp that for us. So is this 85, 87, 90? Like, what are we looking at? No, no, it, it was, it was way later than that. We launched around 90 soft launch around 98, started testing ah. around 98. Uh, but it was pre YouTube, which is a big, which is an important factor. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. pre YouTube. And, um, I was actually, when I started that company, I was an executive at MTV uh, developing television shows, uh, working with uh, Brian Graydon and Lewis Curran, who, who great executives. And, um, you know, we were doing jackass and some crazy hijinks type uh, content. And I, I saw uh, a, a market for this backyard wrestling. I think the first time I saw it, I've, I've been a wrestling fan my, my whole life. Um, but there was a 60 minutes piece or something like that with these kids uh, going batshit. And I just started uh, sending out emails from my uh, MTV email address uh, mm. asking for video. Cause you couldn't find video online. People didn't even know how to really stream it then. Sure. Um, and I, I, all of a sudden I had this PO box that just got <laughs> flooded, flooded with tapes yeah. and you would sit there and look for two hours and, it's a kid jumping on a trampoline and like two hours and 36 minutes in little Tommy's on top of mom and dad's roof. And he's doing a triple moonsault wrapped in barbed wire onto a bed of uh, uh, thumbtacks and a flaming table. Bingo. And kind of like the, the, the Joe Francis model, um, you know, Joe and I crossed paths a lot during that time. That's um, the girls gone wild guy. Right. Yeah. We launched in that, that kind of, late night space howard stern was one of the big um successes for me uh, his he had a show at the time called uh it was his e show uh, there was wild on e and then howard stern that whole block just killed it for us and uh started growing what became the largest uh independent video label in the country Got it. Yeah. So let me just make sure I'm clear on this. So you were at MTV, you had some connections, or you were at least dancing around the space a little bit. You had this idea for what, you know, what it is that you want to do with these backyard videos. Did you then have to bring, did you raise money? Did you bring in people? How did you take the videos and actually turn it into a business? Help, help us understand like what those steps were, because ultimately the people that listen to this show are really trying to figure out how to take the idea in their head and right. start it or scale right. it or, or exit it. So how, how did you do that? Because there's a lot of people who have video or content yeah, ideas. Sure. Sure. They'll never make a dime with it. Right. Uh, well, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting process. So my background had been you know, uh, on the creative side. I produced a lot of TV shows. Uh, so I was venturing into new territory as an entrepreneur, right? And someone gave me some really good advice. I, I immediately put together a great sizzle reel that I was able to do cost effectively on my own because I had the, the means to do it. And uh, for those who don't know, a sizzle reel is like a promo reel, kind of like what you see now on Instagram or YouTube or whatever, just kind of right. a commercial, so to speak. Yeah. Like a trailer, uh, you know, uh, it. It, it was, it was the, the uh, first evolution of what would become the late night TV spot. Right. Yeah. And this caught uh, a lot of attention in the direct response business. So I became immersed in learning everything I could about DRTV, which, uh, you know, direct to consumer, late night infomercial, short form programming, short form uh, commercials. And I had offers from everybody, like the guys who were doing cops too hot for TV and Jerry Springer too hot for TV, uh, which I ironically, I, I was a producer on when I was in my early twenties. Mm. And uh, 
uh, even Joe Francis came to me. Um, and someone came to me and said, uh, I was looking at all these contracts and trying to make sense of them. And a very wise man said, uh, do you believe that this is a million dollar idea? And I said, 100% uh, gun to the head. I have, to, if I got to tell you, if this can make a million dollars, I believe it can make a million dollars. So the yeah. first key was believing in it, right? And he said to me, he said, well, if you believe that, then why in the hell would you sign it over to anyone else and let them, and let them take total control and take this, you know, basically out of your hands, which is essentially what these contracts were, were going to do. And I thought about that for a minute because, you know, in Hollywood, you're so used to making deals and doing contracts and, uh, yeah. And I, I went to work, man. And I just started learning this business myself and it was, you asked, did I raise money? I was using my own money and some credit cards, but I knew that if, if you could catch a, a spark in this particular industry, I just needed to be able to turn $1 into two two dollars into four and reinvest right and it took um i brought a, a good friend of mine actually a kid i'd known since kindergarten rick marr he, he moved out to uh, uh los angeles and we did this together he was an mba and uh, also a huge wrestling fan and a very creative guy and after you know everyone thinks it's overnight success and it never is uh, after a year of trial and error of, of not being able to figure out exactly, you know, we made it too cool at first, too MTV, mm -hmm. too hip. Now uh, you too Wait a minute, you're, you're, uh, you're day job during this or you kind of broke up a little there, Steve. Yeah, Sorry. I got it. Yes, I did yeah. keep my day job. I actually transitioned during this time from, uh, uh, there was a lot of offers, uh, on the table at the time, uh, the Oxygen Network was just starting. And I remember sitting in a room with Tom Warner and Marcy Carsey and Karen Mandebach. And uh, um, they offered me to come over and executive produce a block of programming. And, uh, and then I, I had a meeting with Vin DeBona. And what was fascinating about Vin, this was the creator of America's Funniest Home Videos. Mm. Now, Vin was basically, I was basically doing America's most violent home videos <laughs> with this project, <laughs> right? So I thought, you know, this might be um, a great fit. And I really liked Vin and he had actually optioned a, an idea of mine a few years prior to that. And so he had me come over and I was running his development. So I was making a six figure salary by day and uh, working on this business at night. And I would tell anyone out there who's you know, looking to start something, if you don't have the means to, you know, uh, uh, just go get a bunch of startup money, just, just be ready to, to not sleep. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just put yeah. in the time. The, the time for sure. Yeah. So what was the first, what was the first big break then? Did you get a distribution deal? Did you, what, what, what did it look like in terms of the, when the money started to flow? Well, you know, first of all, I got to tell you, everyone and their brother told me, do not do this. It will ruin your career. It's too, uh, you know, it was very, it was so edgy. Like on the first videos, I didn't even put my name on. I put executive producer, Mr. H. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and so I heard from everyone and, and their brother, do not do this. It will fail. They'll ne you'll never be able to get it on, on the air because it's too crazy. And against uh, all of that advice, I knew in my gut, I, I just felt I was going to be able to monetize this. And we finally got an ad approved. It's about a year in. And I got to tell you, it was getting pretty dicey. We'd run a couple tests and it wasn't good. And then one night, uh, we got the ad just where we wanted it. And we, I think we paid uh, like, uh, it was like a $2,000 spot on the Howard Stern show, 60-second spot for two grand yeah. mm -hmm. and uh i was I would, take, I would take that deal now <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well i ran um uh we ran the the, the spot and it pulled in eight thousand dollars nice so nice. i remember my buddy rick calling me and he said uh well 
we're going to be rich. <laughs> and he knew it in his heart at that point. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah because yeah. then it was just taken. We, then we just took the 8,000, put it all back in. And it only took us a few weeks. Now we were never able to run um, as big of a campaign as say the sham wow, <laughs> you know, or yeah. something like, which, you know, has really no restrictions on the marketing, yeah. Yeah. but we were able to, we were able to get that particular product. And again, this ended up being the first product of many, but we were able to get backyard wrestling to a place where we were running uh, $50,000 a week uh, doing uh, three and four to one uh, on our money. Nice. And yeah, so it was, uh, it was definitely a hit. And then it becomes, you know, how do you, how do you monetize this on every other possible platform? And at the time those platforms were limited. It was, pay-per-view on like uh, a uh, uh, direct TV or in-demand style pay-per-view, uh, an event title. And, uh, and, that, and then DVD, uh, it started out VHS and then DVD. Well, out of the gate, the uh, selfie market for DVD just exploded. And all of a sudden we, you know, between direct response and, uh, and sell through uh, DVD, uh, we were, you know, selling well over a million titles uh, of backyard wrestling, and we were creating a lot more. You know, we have, I think at the end we had about eight or nine uh, versions, and and then uh, comes along a uh, an opportunity to. I, I thought, man, you know, this would make a great video game, and backyard wrestling <laughs> video game. And yeah. so I, I went to I went to my my agents at William Morris who were representing me for television. And I heard the same story all over again. They had just brought in their new, their, their, this guy to run their new media division. You know, you got to remember this is around 2000, right? Yeah. And he's like, Houston, you'll never be able to sell this as a video game. It's just not going to happen. It, you know, it, it, it involves, uh, you know, it stems from a product off of an infomercial first off. That's never been done before. Yada, 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 yada. I didn't listen to any of that. <laughs> And uh, ended up inking a deal with IDOS Interactive, the makers of Tomb Raider, which was the biggest video game of the world sure. at the time. Sure. And uh, and we uh, we built Backyard Wrestling Video Game, which also went on. It, they didn't make a great game, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, just on the brand alone, you know, it, it went on to uh, do like fifty million over fifty million in revenue. Wow. And were you uh, selling it to the same audience that was watching it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, there was, it was a, you know, a, a little bit of a hybrid, but yeah, the, the kids who are watching it were also playing video games. You know? mm -hmm. So they were running out to buy it. And, and IDOS was smart enough to see that, you know, uh, they knew that uh, we already had a brand that was targeting their demographic. And so they, they, they took an engine that was already built for some other game and kind of slapped a backyard wrestling, uh, you know, dressing on it. Mm -hmm. And we ended up making two games and, uh, uh, and, and they did very well despite, you know, them not being, I don't think they, I thought they could have been a lot better, but um, you know, I, I got to say, I was told I, there were so many naysayers on that journey. Uh, and I'm, you know, obviously very happy that I listened to my gut. Yeah. Did you exit out of that or did it just kind of run its course and you pocketed some change and called it a day? I um, parlayed. I'm a gambler. <laughs> so uh, that uh, built a bigger business. Um, before I knew it, we were doing ghetto brawls, brawling broads, world's wildest street fights, <laughs> world's wildest bachelor parties. Uh, I'll never forget. I, I went to shoot this world's wildest bachelor party video. We called a bachelor party company out of Vegas and we just said, hey, uh, if you got any bachelors who, you know, want their party paid for, uh, let us know and we'll pay for the whole party as long as we can shoot the video. And we had these guys call and they're like, okay, well, we got some guys, but they have a, a particular request. <laughs> what is it? They said, well, they want a two girl shower show. I said, that's normal. They said, yeah, they also want a midget. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I called uh, Bridget the Midget from the Howard Stern Show. Oh, yeah. And her, her contract for all of you that are uh, looking at uh, negotiating 
her contract was $800 in a bottle of Jägermeister. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. And, and I didn't even have to market a lot of these things. At this point, we controlled the special interest aisle so well that, um, you know, I got into that, you know, maybe say we spent 10 grand, made a half a million. You wow. know, we're doing a lot of titles like that over and over and over. And, mm. um, and then we got into some other uh, spaces in the video uh, market that were also lucrative. Like the, you know, there was a, a time where, where Disney and Warner Brothers, they had their baby Einstein and baby genius. And sure. I came out with baby know-it-all. And, uh, you know, before I knew it, I was in the Walmart uh, uh, aisles in a, a kid's cube sitting there with Disney, Warner Brothers and Big Vision Entertainment, my company, wow. uh, you know, and, um, you know, so we started crushing it on a lot of levels. And then uh, Big Vision Entertainment also uh, started its own television development uh, department and we started developing and selling tv shows and doing pay-per-view events and uh and the company was um i would say uh by 2007 uh we were we were on our way to being acquirable and um and then some stuff happened and you know what happened in 2008 but uh uh, but the game was was also becoming a big part of my life then, and yeah. uh, um, you know. So the, did you did it did it cross. collapse on? I mean, did it collapse on you entirely, or did you end up getting anything for the back titles? Or I mean, was there was there oh, any yeah. exit? Yeah, no, I own I own a I own a multi million dollar library worth of content, which I'm now building a new platform off of uh, mm -hmm. that has never been monetized in the in the digital arena. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, you know, I, after the heart attack and everything that happened on the heels of the game, which if your viewers read the book, they'll find out I, I kind of went through a real roller coaster moment. Yeah. And th those happen for every entrepreneur, guys. <laughs> they happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. What so. was the biggest, what was the biggest lesson you think that you learned then from as you, as you look back on that particular period of time what what would be the primary takeaway never get too comfortable when money is flowing and you are uh, doing really well i think that is the time that you need to sit down and and say are we looking at the uh, ahead far enough you know do we see what's coming uh the moment you get complacent in a business, especially one that involves technology, um, you'll get, you, you can get crushed. And the big thing that I didn't see coming uh, in hindsight was the demise of the DVD. Mm -hmm. Sure. And it happened almost overnight. And unfortunately it also happened in a really bad time uh, for our economy. It happened around 2008. Yeah. When everything fell apart. So, you know, it's bad enough being realizing you were a little late uh, and you should have moved quicker. But now being in a position where the entire economy is collapsing and you should have moved quicker, you know, it makes it 10 times worse. Um, thankfully, I had poker at the time, uh, you know, until some some other things happened that put the kibosh on that. But yeah, I would say uh, not looking ahead. You you always have to be thinking about what the next step is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So appreciate all that. Richie, let me let you jump in and then we're going to get to um, the the subject matter that, that I really want to dive into here around cards. So Richie, let me let you, uh, let me let you jump in with all your questions because I know oh you got a million gosh. things there. I yeah, mean, please. I got like 30, so I'm going to narrow it down. <laughs> but first, but first what I'm going to do here is I'm going to, point out a couple things that yeah. for our listeners and then the lead to a question. Um, you know, if people remember as they've been listening to the show, it, it's, it's not quite binary, but it's kind of binary. Usually sometimes someone has a vision and they have the plan and they know the exact plan and there's still roller coaster rides to your point. There, there's always a roller coaster ride. Right. And then there's others that have a general concept and then 
build the ship while they're sailing it or build the plane while they're flying it or whatever the analogy is. Right. Sure. And it, and it, it sounds, but no matter what relationships always seem to play a huge role. And, you know, you were at MTV at the beginning right. and, you, and you even said, I mean, it was a little bit seated. Like I sent them emails from my MTV. So right out of the gate, yeah. you're getting credibility via MTV, but yet. I, it, it's you, huge. It's oh, a huge thing that you caught that because yeah. it was, it was an, I think an integral part of our initial uh, success in that, the first thing you have to do after you have an idea is you have to get a product, right? Well, the only way we were going to get this product is from all of these kids who are making it in their backyards. And what better way to reach them than for them to receive an email that said Houston Curtis at MTV.com. Right? Yeah, you know? Beavis and buttheads rocking around then and all that. So yeah. there's all... So, so that was one thing I noticed. Um, so you leverage that credibility. Sure. Um, it was interesting and I'd love to hear a little bit just brief. Cause I know we, there's so much more and we want to get into your book and all that stuff, but um, why you started to look for other partnerships until you took it on your own when you were already at MTV, what was, what was that part of you that knew you needed it to be yours? You needed to kind of break away, even though you use the leverage of MTV in the email, Right. Right. What was that? What was your thinking in then? And what, what helped you for those people who are trying to start that might right sure. now can still be sending emails. They might be letting go in a couple months, but they're trying to leverage where they're at. So you're thinking right. behind that. Well, you know, at MTV, uh, it was a great gig and, uh, and a great experience. Um, and I was developing a lot of shows and I was involved with a lot of big shows at that time. I mean, I, I sit down with Sharon Osbourne when the, uh, the Osbournes, her first pitch was Ozzy wants to have dinner and we'll have people over and, and he'll take the piss. <laughs> you know, that was the original pitch for the Osbournes. So I was around a lot of great ideas and a lot of cool things that were being developed, but I knew that you know, my job there, even if I was getting an exec producer title or whatever and getting big bonuses at the end of the year, I didn't, in my heart of hearts, I didn't want to be a, um, a network guy. I was always, you know, more of a producer. I wanted to create something that was mine. And with MTV, um, in the position I was in, it would have been turned over, you know, and, and backyard wrestling might've been a little too crazy, even for MTV right then, <laughs> you know, uh, I remember taking a meeting with Mike Darnell at Fox and Mike was the guy who greenlit all those like when animals attack and all that stuff. And he had a couple of my DVDs sitting on his uh, shelf. And I, I said, you know, that's, that's me. Right. And he's like, he's like, I know he's like, I've tried, He's like, I've thought of so many ways, like, how can we get this on television, <laughs> you know, as, as an ongoing show, because I know it would crush it. And we laughed about it. Uh, but it really was too hot for TV. Mm -hmm. So that was one uh, aspect of, of why I didn't kind of go with MTV as a partner. But then the other aspect was uh, just realizing that, uh, uh, you know, if you, if you feel like you really have a vision for something and the deals that are being offered to you are, uh, if, if there's something that just doesn't make you feel right, you know, because uh, these deals look shiny and glossy in some ways, but if there's one thing in a contract that just doesn't make you feel right, you know, trust your, your gut and, and take a second look. And thank God I did, because if I would have signed a contract with one of these major DRTV companies, this company that I was going to sign with was the hottest direct response company in the business at the time. They went under six months later mm -hmm. and they stole all the money from everyone they were doing deals with. Like none of oh. their content suppliers made a dime, you know, mm -hmm. so they looked like they were on fire. But my, my gut and kind of my, my poker sensibilities from, you know, in my you know, hustler sensibilities, which we'll talk about later, um, told me there was a red flag there. 
and uh and then and then i had some some great advice uh, uh at the time uh from a mentor who uh um you know just said if you believe it and this is a guy who had built a multi-million dollar business and he said if you believe this is a million dollar business don't let anybody uh take it away from you and that's what those guys were going to do they're going to take it away mm-hmm. you know? yeah so so i'll ask one more and it'll be a perfect segue to the cards because it just made me think of this like also you didn't really have as much to lose then right there was it was the upside risk the downside or excuse me the downside risk upside gain it's like poker if you're about ready to get blinded out and a two seven offsuit can be a full house like at the right doesn't mean you'd want to do that every single time but if you're about ready to go out and you just like hey you never know what you're going to get next it depends on who's dealing the cards uh, <laughs> but 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 yeah no that's a good point and um if i was a quarter of a million in and you know and i had invested all my own money on this little startup and and now it's like you know consuming then I think about taking, you know, some advance and, and calling it a day uh, for anyone out there in the entertainment space, any of your listeners who are developing entertainment product where there's an advance against a royalty, mm-hmm. just, just know that nine times out of 10, you will never recoup the advance. Uh, even at the biggest companies, like I, I once hired a CFO to come work for me from Lionsgate. His job at Lionsgate was his sole job at Lionsgate was to make sure that no content owners ever received a royalty on any content deals that they had done with Lionsgate. That was his job. And, I just bought their 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 stock too, bastards! If I'd only known. Hey. Trading at, at eight bucks right now seems kind of like a steal. So hey, they're making money. So <laughs> yeah, right. So literally, the last question on this piece would be: yeah. in hindsight, it'll be a question and then pause with a comment. Okay. Um, in hindsight, do you think you should have? You see MTV, or excuse me, you see YouTube. You see pretty much the re- part of the reason that DVDs were going away is everyone's just uploading the damn things, you know, and giving stuff away and pirating things. And I mean, there's tons of stuff that were changing right then, but um, because it kind of makes me think even what you guys are talking about with royalty about this whole Joe Rogan podcast, like it's great. It's paper money. They give them a hundred million three days later, they're worth 10 billion more. So they basically got paid billion to give him a hundred million, but he had the eyeballs. And so if you, you almost could have, I'm not, you know, could have, should have, would have hindsight 2020. Right. But go ahead. (laughs) You think you would do it differently if you knew how content was going to be distributed later, would you have just uploaded that stuff yourself and built a new audience there and tried to figure out how to leverage it? Or do you think you would have, I wouldn't have um, uploaded it from the beginning because it was too new. But if I knew then what I know now, the moment YouTube started, I would have taken every piece of content I had and built a channel. Mm. 100%. Unfortunately, we can't live in that, um, you know, (laughs) that beautiful bubble of being able to go back and change things. But, uh, what happened, a lot of guys like me who started, you know, producing a lot of content that were independent content owners or smaller companies that were owning content, we, um, we, ne- we held off. We never wanted to give in to the, the idea of we're really going to give this away for free. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, uh, and I hate to say this, but it's true. It was, it was a vision that was too far out for me to see at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I like to think that, you know, uh, everyone would like to think they're, you know, a little bit of a, a visionary in their own business, right. In their own space. Um, but that's one I didn't see. And sure. I would, uh, uh, if I could, if I could turn back those hands of time, I, I would have put everything on YouTube, started a channel and, uh, uh, and waited for a revenue model to arise <laughs> because yeah. it, it wasn't there in the beginning, you know, and now it is. Yeah. 
So the so as you sit so as you sit here today, Houston, the the majority of your your net worth, the what you were able to keep, has that come primarily then from from gambling, from producing, from like what kind of the eighty twenty rule? Where, where as as you sit here today, eighty percent of of what you held on to and what you still like, where would you say that that came from then? Um, well. I, uh, there's a lot of content in the gambling space that I own, which is directly related to, uh, you know, my kind of secondary career as a professional Mm -hmm. gambler. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, outside of that, uh, I own a large library, uh, of, you know, video content that, uh, is separated into different niche categories um, that comes from Big Vision Entertainment and what I was able to build when I was there. Gotcha. And, uh, and that's, that's where my focus on my next business in that particular space is going to be. And it's also going to cross over. You know, one thing I, w- I would tell people who are watching is if you can, I, one thing I've been very lucky uh, about in my, in my life um, luckier than, than I don't want to say luckier than most, but I've always only done what I love. Mm. I've never once uh, done something that I hated to do. Now I may have grown to hate it, (laughs) but uh, if you can, if you are blessed enough to find something in life that you are passionate about and you can make money doing it, then it almost doesn't matter how much you make. Cause you know, you're going to wake up every day being excited uh, to take that next step. And I've always loved what I've, what I've done. Yeah. Uh, you know, so now I'm going to be building a new OTT platform that, you know, really uh, to your question earlier, the, aside from YouTube, the way to monetize my content is just now, you know, just now arriving, you know, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. It feels like 20 years later, you know, yeah. outside of sell through DVD. Like when that died, you would think, okay, sell physical DVD is dead. I should immediately be able to go to a digital, you know, uh, platform and sell to the same customer who's now watching on this device. But for special interest content, that did, took a long time for that to happen. And YouTube stopped a lot of that because there was so much content in the special interest space that was being released for free. And you couldn't monetize YouTube for so many years. And, you know, and I didn't start that YouTube channel. So now there's a way to monetize this content. And I know how to aggregate a lot more of it and produce a lot more of it. So, yeah. so I'm excited about the future. You know, I, th- I yeah. think it's going to be a, a cool journey. Yeah, totally, totally makes sense. So let's um, so let's jump into the 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 card world yeah. a bit here. Where where did you hone your your blackjack and your poker skills? Was that something you learned from your dad? Was it a was it just let me just you just had an interest? Like where where did the skill come from? I um, learned how to play poker. And I learned my first magic trick on the same day uh, when I was uh, about seven years old from my dad. And I'd been watching my dad play poker all night. And, uh, um, you know, he was a pipeliner. He'd go off on the road a lot. And he was also a musician. And, uh, and I'd hear about these poker games he'd play in on the road. So he had a home game one night. And I, I was uh, you know, just a little kid fascinated. And by the end of the night, I kind of figured out how the game worked. And he, uh, he said, you want to, he said, you want to play around for me, boy? He's from Louisiana. And I, uh, I said, yeah. So I got up and played with his buddies and I actually won a huge pot hmm. uh, for him. I don't remember the hand, but we we're playing five card stud. And, uh, and I was just fascinated with it. And then after everyone left, uh, I was helping him put the chips away and, and, uh, and he, uh, he said, let me show you something. And he took the deck of cards and he said, pick a card. And then uh, he, uh, I put it back in the deck and then he put the deck under the table and he took his hand, he slapped it on the table 
And no, he put the deck on top of the table and put his hand under, slapped it, and the card went magically through the table into his hand. <laughs> mm. And I was like, wow, how did you do that? And of course, you know, he just palmed the card and put it under the table. But, um, and then I became just really fascinated with magic as well. And that obsession led to uh, me ultimately finding a book that was written in 1902 uh, by a man named S.W. Erdnays, uh, which was a fake name. He was a professional gambler. And he wrote what is now known as the Bible for card cheats. And uh, so I learned how to manipulate a deck of playing cards. I didn't even find that book till you know, there was no Amazon back then. Right. I, I was probably 11 before I, I ever found it. I read about the book in another book. And I read about this, this mysterious move called the bottom deal, dealing off the bottom of the deck. And I think even from an early age, I had this romantic notion of what it would have been like to be one of these, you know, road gamblers or guys during the turn of the century that were mm -hmm. riverboat gamblers and, and controlling the outcome of your own destiny. And, uh, um, it's like free money. Right. And it, nothing is ever free. And you learn that right. later, but, yeah. but, uh, for many years I played in, uh, uh, what, what would be called under fire, uh, in probably, you know, some, I would say dangerous games. Uh, I wouldn't suggest this to any of your <laughs> readers. Uh, now I'm on the other side of that, and I teach poker protection. I write a, a bi-monthly article for Card Player Magazine uh, talking about Hollywood poker and high-stakes poker and, and also uh, leaving a lot of tips on how not to not get cheated. But it was those games playing uh, with like, guys that were really like mobbed up like Russian and Armenian mobsters in Los Angeles mm. uh, that led to bigger and, you know, they kept getting bigger and bigger until um, – you know, I was finally at a game. It was the biggest game I was ever going to, that anyone's ever going to play in. And uh, the game was so good that you didn't need to cheat. Uh, you, you, just, uh, you just had to show up and be a good poker player. Yeah. Um, so, so the, uh, like, it, pretty well done. I mean, I, you, you know, for a poker movie, I think uh, all things being equal, they did a really good job of capt you know, capturing interest from start to finish on that game. How much of that was based on what you did with, uh, with Toby Maguire and, and give us a little bit of the inside story around sure. that. Um, well, first off, uh, yeah. Director Aaron Sorkin, we now call him director. It was his first director. film he ever directed. Um, I've always been a fan of, of Sorkin's. Um, he did a great job with the movie. Um, the story uh, came from Molly's perspective. And there were a lot of things that were twisted uh, out of context, which is a big reason on why I wrote this book in, in the first and place. And just, just so we're clear, was Molly in, in, was she a part of what you were doing or that was just a separate thing altogether? Oh no, I'm in the movie. There's a character, remember the guy Harlan Hustis in the movie who loses a million dollars in a night? Yeah. Full tilt. That's me. <laughs> That's me. Got it, got yeah. it, got it. And got it. the thing is in the, in the film, she introduces Harlan as like some dude that, you know, Seems like he came in after the fact, but in her indictment uh, and her deposition, when she had to name all the players from the LA game after a big Ponzi scheme broke out with one of our players and the feds used that as leverage against her because she was raking a game in New York at the time. The first name she gave on the first night she ever dealt poker or, or not dealt, but ever hosted a poker game was Houston Curtis. It was Houston mm. Curtis, Toby McGuire. Toby and I ran the game. And, and the, the, the long and short of it is uh, we created the game and it started in his kitchen. And uh, just like any business, we identified a market. And in this case, the market was uh, poker was brand new. And we were going to take the, this new, uh, what a lot of people thought was a fad, uh, this new craze and combine it with the love of celebrity. Mm -hmm. And you would be surprised at the amount of money uh, someone will, will put up just to sit for an hour, a couple hours with a major celebrity. For sure. So one of the first uh, things we did in our business plan is we got Leo DiCaprio, who is Toby's best friend. Uh, 
made sure Leo was going to be there to play. And of course, Toby was at the height of his celebrity at the time with mm -hmm. Spider-Man. And uh, I mean, hell, Leo didn't even use his own money. Toby and I staked him. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, but it was uh, it was a great investment. You know, I I put what we put five ten grand at risk at the time. It started out with a five thousand dollar buy-in and then went way up. But uh, Leo only played aces or kings. He was super tight anyway, so there wasn't much risk there. But the fish, the 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 guys that come just to sit with them yeah uh, that was part one of the strategy and part two was we took advantage of where the market was uh, to put it in business speak at the time people didn't understand the structure of poker they just knew here's this game it's real easy to play you just use you know two cards and mm -hmm. uh and if you didn't notice, I just turned that into a different ace. <laughs> you just use two cards and uh, you, make a, you make a community poker hand. Uh, so we had guys that were coming, uh, that were very wealthy, that were fascinated with a new game. So we set the buy-in really low at five grand. Now I say really low. I, I know a lot of people are like, that's, not, that's a lot of money. And it is. But for these guys, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, Five grand to get, and I get to sit and hang out with Toby McGuire and Ben Affleck and Leo DiCaprio all night. Count me in, right? Yeah. So they just started coming. However, uh, do either of you play poker at all? I do. Yeah. Okay. So yes. our blinds, our blind structure, you'll, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. So the buy-in was 5,000, but the blinds were 100, 200. Okay. So with blinds that high, you have to have about 50,000 to sit right in a 100, 200, no limit game. It was no mm -hmm. limit. It wasn't spread mm -hmm. limit. It was no limit. And um, no one understood that at the time. You know, uh, even when we, we were first talking about it, I'm like, yeah, well, you know, five grand's not going to cut it. And, and Toby's like, yeah, should we raise it? And I said, no, the, if they got the money, <laughs> they're most likely going to pay in by, by check, uh, you know, or they'll bring a certain amount of cash and, mm -hmm. and pay so, uh, and nobody wants to stiff a celebrity, you know, no one wants to be the guy who stiffed Toby McGuire, you know? Yeah. So, uh, they all came and, uh, they thought it was going to be worse. They could do is they lose five grand. The button gets around by the time the button gets around the table twice. Some of these guys are in for 25 to 35,000, mm -hmm. you know, and sure. that's how it started. And I, I would have kept it that way much longer than we did um, because I think it would have taken, you know, maybe even three or four years before people, you know, started you, getting wise to that. And you were just working on tips or you were just working on whatever byproducts would come out of the game. It wasn't even a matter of making money off of the game or what was the thinking around no, that? No, no, I, I, I was – You were playing I to was, win. I was playing and I was yeah, winning – and, and yeah. then, then the, the buy-in goes up to $50,000 buy-in. And now we're in five-star hotels. Uh, you know, in the movie Molly's Game, Molly makes it look like she engineered that, um, which is what we wanted it to look like at the time. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, because Toby did not want it being spread around town that, you know, Toby McGuire's running a card game. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, the the thing about the movie, not to, to jump around, but one thing that I do want to say that was really disappointing um, is, and, and her book is that, um, uh, you know, Toby Maguire is like a, a, he's taken a big, I think, hit in his career in the past few years. And he's like a really good guy. Like, this is a guy who, um, you know, I could shake this guy's hand over any amount of money. And, and wouldn't need a piece of paper. That, that's the kind of guy he is. He, he's mm. a lot of integrity. And when our game was about to go into a different phase, we started, we were going to play at a billionaire, Alec Gore's house. And, uh, and we can circle back about that in a second. But when that was happening, we knew Molly would be out of a job. And we invited a big player from New York who was running a similar game in New York, but he had no one organizing it. And Toby himself, I was standing there when Toby said, we called him New York Cliff. He was a maniac. Hey, Toby said, Cliff, we know you don't have anybody organizing your game. You should have Molly come to New York and organize your game. 
So at that point, Molly was making $30,000 a night in tips mm. for calling eight guys and getting drinks. Okay. Mm. And booking a hotel room. 30,000 a night. She was driving a Bentley and we had guys living, losing half a million a night. And she's pulling up to the hotel in a Bentley. And, uh, and, and then Toby handed her New York on a silver platter. And then she writes this tell all just like blasting him yeah. and makes him sound like a cheap tipper. I mean, even the night that he did ask her to bark like a seal because she was making too much money uh, he, and she refused to do it. He still gave her a thousand dollar tip. So mm -hmm. uh, anyway, I just had to get that yeah. out of the way. So let, let me ask you this real quick and then Rich, I'll turn it over to you. Cause I got to get, I got to get this, this question answered. I don't want to run out of time here and we'll, we'll probably, as far as I'm concerned, we'll stay on as long as you want to stay on. I'm um, here with you guys. So, um, so as someone who considers himself to be um, a very amateur player and it's like, I do Brazilian jujitsu and I've been doing it for a long time. And it's like, you know, I start to think, okay, you know, I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at that. And then I come up against like a fourth degree black belt. I'm like, damn, I don't know shit, right? <laughs> so, you know, that's just kind of how it goes. Right. And in poker, jujitsu ju is white belt, blue, purple, brown, black, and then yeah, degrees of, of black. I'm a black belt it. in Okinawa and Kimpo. Uh, so I studied so myself, you, yeah. So you get it. <laughs> so I consider myself to be a pretty uh, decent card player. And then sometimes I think, yeah, I can play in this game. Right. And then I come up against real players and I'm like, okay, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a good blue belt, you know, in, in poker at best. What, what is the, what, what are the fundamental differences and what are some of the strategies that, that um, card players need to be thinking about at your level? Like how are you looking at the game different from how I'm looking at the game? Uh, there's what one are the mistake. What are the mistakes I'm making? Basically the, the biggest mistake that I see players make uh, specifically players who are wanting to do well in cash games. Okay. Uh, is they, they is, is game selection. You know, I have poker is, uh, you should, I have an ego when, when you're, when you're playing for money. And I have no desire to sit down and put a million dollars at risk against Doyle Brunson and Jen Harmon and, and Phil Ivey. And I love all those guys, but I don't want to sit and, you know, risk money playing with better players. Mm. So the, the biggest tip I could give to someone who's actually looking to make a living playing poker, even as uh, someone who's like going to grind it out rounding home games. Um, it's game selection. Know who you're playing with. Uh, what we put together was very simple. It was, we found guys who were never going to run out of money and they were never going to get any better playing poker. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. And that was the, that was the winning formula right there. Uh, and it was a multi-million dollar winning formula. Yeah. Richie, what were you going to say? There's a couple quick things. So one, I would, to delineate between the two, you wouldn't want to do a cash game with those players, but you probably wouldn't mind knowing you're going into a tournament and you have this set amount that you may lose. And now you're at the final table with them in a tournament. I'd, I'd imagine there's a good difference point. There. Good, good point. Yeah. And, and I've enjoyed playing with all of those guys and I played with them in cash games too. Um, yeah. Being at, at a tournament table with, uh, you know, I'm good buddies with Phil Helmuth. I mean, being at a tournament table with Phil Helmuth is, you know, is, is a blast. Uh, and I being in a game with Phil is a blast. And uh, then the other, the other piece of that was to, with your formula, it, it worked. Cause I, th I can't remember the character's name. I think it was bad Brad. Like, <laughs> was, like that's a perfect example because and, and maybe it's just Molly's into the story, or you could say it was true. Oh. Like it, it, it's perfect because he doesn't mind losing that because he's also got the hedge fund where he's getting people that are investing in his stuff. So he's losing however much hundred thousand or whatever the number was, but he's making millions because. Yeah. It, it's it, almost it, like reciprocity. They want to do invest because. <laughs> you know, he was an interesting cat, man. I had never in my life met someone like this guy. And I would say uh, it was one of the things in the movie that, you know, they got right. Uh, however, 
Molly would call me throughout the making of the film and ask for hands histories because she didn't play any of the games. She didn't know any of the hands. And that big hand that my character, the Harlan Houston character, loses uh, with the, um, it was uh, a flop. He had pocket queens, the flop comes queen seven, seven. And then it went runner, runner, king, king. Mm -hmm. That hand actually happened. It, it just happened in a totally different way with totally different players. It didn't happen to me. It was a, a fun hand I told her about, and she used it to make it my million-dollar losing hand, which, um, you know, was was a different hand altogether. But And Bad Brad was never a part of that equation with me. I would have called – There's, it, it would have taken a gun to my head to lay down a full house against this dude. <laughs> <You know? Sure. laughs> it was yeah. not going to happen. Um, and it was weird because he was so bad – that um, Toby and I, uh, in the movie, Molly says she did it, but in reality, Toby and I set him down and tried to get him lessons, tried to get him to um, uh, read books. I had DVDs I'd produced with Phil Helmuth and Annie Duke in the poker space, and he, he wasn't having any of it. And, you know, hell, I mean, he had $10 million invested from Alec Gores, one of the players in the game. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know at the time that he was turning dollars into dimes at an alarming rate. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we took him for over 5 million and 750,000 of that was checks written to me. And, uh, and it was like, it's like the world just collapsed at once when all that happened because it was mm -hmm. 2008 hit all of a sudden I'm living in a $3 million house. That's now worth 1.2 million. And mm -hmm. we're going to put a $750,000 lien on that house too, because of this uh, little snafu with, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> with bad Brad yeah. Ruderman. Um, uh, but yeah, he was a gem until he wasn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. So let me, let me, and I just, I'm going to, going to go down to this rabbit hole just a little bit further. Like what is one, like, do you, how, how do you know, man? Like, like, you just have, is it just a matter of instinct and you just know when, is it, is it watching the betting pattern? Is it really playing enough to learn the nuances of the players, as you said, but let's just say you go to a random table and you don't know, you have no, you know, you got no tip sheet, you got nothing on these guys. Right. How do you get comfortable in that game quickly? Do you only play, are they, are they like, do you only play like Leo was playing with the Aces Kings at first to get a sense of, Right, sure. What people are doing, like, how do you how do you warm up quickly to a new table? Well, I would say this: uh, the first bit of advice on there is is go back to the movie Rounders, and uh, one of the first lines uh, he says, which comes from the poker world: uh, "Look, if in the first half hour you can't spot the sucker at the table." You're it. <laughs> and you are the sucker. <laughs> There's never been more yeah. true advice than that. Uh, yeah. You need to be able to assess. It's like going into a room in a business meeting, right? Or it, you need to be able to assess who you are talking to and who you're dealing with. Because you're, you're now on a, you know, it, it, if you equate it to business, it's now like your entire uh, uh company is yeah. is you and at that table and everyone else are the people that you know you have to they have to pay you and or are gonna try and screw you or whatever and it usually would take me about uh two orbits and for those who don't know what that is uh in in games today they have a what's called a center dealer who deals instead of past the deal which was great that's how it used to be um and uh, by the time the button goes around twice, um, if you should be able to know what you're up against. So I usually would just play super tight and just watch the game if, if it's players I don't know. Mm -hmm. And in about two orbits, you can figure out who you don't, who you want to be careful tangling with and, and, and who is, um, you know, the person who's most likely to pay you off. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing is that just comes with experience. You know, it's, mm -hmm. I had thousands of hours at the table. I mean, I'd been playing since I was a kid and, uh, and from the nineties I was playing at the, you know, I would finish my job at MTV or wherever I was working at the time. And at night I would go, um, if I wasn't in a home game, 
I'd be out at Hollywood Park, you know, with the grinders over in the pot limit game, uh, making, you know, I probably made like an extra 60 grand a year to supplement my income back, back then. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the time, you know, it seemed like, you know, huge money and, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's, you know, it, it takes time and there are lots of books you can read to learn to do that. But, but if you're just aware, a lot of people just aren't, they, they sit down and they're just looking at the cards, you know, the cards, you know, yeah, you need to learn what position to play your cards in. Um, just like you need to learn, you know, in business when to, uh, you know, when to, to invest, when to get out, when to, uh, you know, take a product to market, you know, you, you know, these things because you know, your business, well, you need to know your business with cards. You know, you don't, you don't, uh, uh, you don't call with aces. If you're in late position and you have five limpers, you do not smooth call, you pop it up, you raise it because you want to clear the field and get head up with just one or two of those guys. You don't want to mm -hmm. give five guys the chance to get lucky on you. You yeah. know, you need to get yeah. value for your hands. So you learn how to play position and you learn how to read players. And, uh, and then if you're lucky, you can find a home game that happens, goes off every week <laughs> mm -hmm. for an exorbitant amount of money. And, uh, and it's like yeah. Christmas every Tuesday and Thursday. <laughs> yeah. M moral of the story. Uh, don't, don't accept an invite from Toby Maguire to a card game <laughs> or, yeah. or, or Houston uh, Curtis, right? No, man, yeah. Great. And, um, and, and I have to ask, and then Rich, I'll give you the opportunity to ask one more question here before we wrap. If you, if you've got one more, I'm sure you do. Um, just real quick here, man, how do you get banned playing blackjack? Because if they're just coming out of the shoot with cards, I mean, yes, the odds, I, I believe the blackjack has the best odds in, in the casino in terms of giving you the opportunity to, to win, unless you're just playing a heads up game, like, you know, poker sure. or something like that. Sure. Um, but what, how, how do you, how do you think about blackjack in a way that you got so good at it? You got banned. Well, you know, it was, um, believe me, there's, there's, I have my blackjack losing stories too. Cause mm. every, every poker player has leaks, right? Like you see uh, one of the most famous, uh, uh, tournament players of all time, TJ Cloutier. Uh, you, you'd always see TJ at the craps tables after a tournament, after a big win. <laughs> You know, then about two days later, he, you'd bump into him and he'd be like, Hey man, uh, you want to put me in this tournament? You want to back? <laughs> oh, yeah. So you got to realize a lot of these guys, you know, have major leaks. Um, yeah. Blackjack was a passion of mine. And, uh, you know, and I met some of the greatest blackjack players in the world. I went to the, the blackjack ball like two years in a row. It's a top secret event in Vegas where all the banned black blackjack players go. Um, so I wasn't counting. It was at the Golden Nugget. And um, I, uh, it's actually an interesting story because I was getting blown out on the strip. I was producing a, a TV show, The Ultimate Blackjack Tour. We were, I think, at the Venetian at the time. And I had never played blackjack there. And I got stuck like um, 300,000 300, 200, on markers. And um, I had markers all over town back then. It wasn't a big deal, but I didn't want to like pay the marker. I wanted to win it back, right? Mm -hmm. So to win it back, I went and took out another marker at another casino. So mm -hmm. I, kept, I, I kept going to the Nugget. Now, one thing uh, about the Nugget is they would let me uh, dictate a certain set of um, specific things that I wanted in place. And they agreed to that before I got there. I wanted the tables all to myself and I, I was, uh, I wanted to be able to go back and forth from two tables and I wanted the ability to, um, reshuffle, uh, more than uh, reshuffle at least twice during a two deck, um, game. Shoot. Yeah. Double deck. And they agreed to those terms. Okay. <laughs> And what I noticed that they did, they had, there's a cut card that comes into play with blackjack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, a lot of places cut it almost near the center. They were cutting it really low. So when I was getting a run, a, a good run, when the deck was going my way, I was really maximizing my wins. 
Uh, and when it wasn't, I would reshuffle or move tables or change dealers or use any of the other methods in place to kind of basically start over. Mm-hmm. And um, I, so I had, uh, I had had this $200,000 marker out. I went to the nugget uh, one night. I went 130 grand. I go back and, uh, but I'm still not, you know, still doesn't pay off the 200. So I play a little bit more. I lose the 130 at the Venetians. Ooh, I went yeah. back to the nugget the next night. I won uh, 110,000. Come back dumping at the Venetian. I went back, like an like an idiot. By the way, this is a good lesson. Do not do mm-hmm. this. I should have just gone to the nugget and played there, because uh, they didn't give me any of those gimmies at the Venetian. I was just playing straight against the house, and um, and then I won another six figures the third night in a row. And so the fourth night I went back. It was, uh, it was, it was late. I, I, no, I, I went back and I walked in and the, the CFO came down and I had met him once before. Um, but he's Mr. Curtis, uh, you are no longer welcome to play in this casino. <laughs> and I said, well, why? I said, I'm flat betting five grand a hand pretty much. And he said, yeah, he said, we, we're not sure exactly what your strategy is, but we've looked at the records here and you've never lost here in five mm. years <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't huge money but i'd won like 1.7 million since yeah. i'd started playing there with zero losses oh, and i had always said eh, the, the nugget's my lucky spot uh but what was funny is uh, so then i say to them uh, you know um i'll just play roulette or they're like no no you don't understand you can't play anything in this casino ever again <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and i but i did get a free i said i'm not leaving without a free dinner so he's like, feed him. So he <laughs> fed me. The free on the way out. Then we so, went back and I, and I put $100 in a video poker machine real short and hit a $7,500 Royal Flush, took that to Caesars, and in an hour ran it up to $275,000, down to my last 100 bucks that, that particular oh, night. That was a That's great awesome. <laughs> so for the uh, great story, for the amateur blackjack players, you lose three hands in a row. Is that kind of the thing? You got to get up and move? Or is it? Yeah, uh, it's not going to change. It's not going to change. change. Yeah, two or three. <laughs> All right, Rich, anything else that you want to drop on Mr. Curtis here before we uh, plug his book and where to go to get more info and all that fun stuff? No, I could literally talk for hours. I'll reach out after. I just want to know more about the book, and I don't want to run out of time before we I'll come back anytime, guys, anytime. That sounds good. And uh, and how likely is it you can get us uh, a a little little forum here with uh, some of the folks in the Rolodex there, man? We'd love to sit down with some of your friends. Just just, uh, give me a call. Talk to me. Sounds like a plan. All right. Speaking of uh, things to do and and uh, and how to continue your friendship with uh, with Houston Curtis here, you definitely want to check out uh, for sure Billion Dollar Hollywood Heist. And um, and then you got a new book coming out as well, right? I, I have a, a book that's a little more focused uh, to advantage players uh, called Million Dollar Mechanics. That's basically my life secrets of card manipulation. That'll be coming out later in the year. Uh, but Billion Dollar Hollywood Heist is, is relatively, you know, uh, uh, new. And uh, I would say if people want to pick it up, if they want to do me a solid, uh, they can get an autographed copy at cardsharp.com, my website with a K, K-A-R-D-S-H-A-R-P.com. Uh, I'll autograph it for you. And, uh, but then make sure and go to Amazon and give me the five-star review. Cause that there you go. <laughs> Sounds like a plan, man. Uh, we could do this all day. Just uh, really appreciate the uh, the inside scoop and uh, wish you nothing but the, the best of luck moving forward. I love what right. you guys are doing. I love your show, and I'll come back anytime. Sounds good. All right, Richie, take us out of here, my friends, and we'll talk to you guys really soon on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody.